All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, definitely look around. There should be one on a chair or a row somewhere. And open into the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. After the book of Acts to the book of Romans chapter 7. And as you're uh, turning there, just a welcome to everyone. Good to have you. Good to see you all for our time of corporate worship, really as we ascend in corporate worship through the hearing and the study of the Word of God. We are in a verse-by-verse study through Romans, and uh, here at Cornerstone, we uh, do our best to take the Bible seriously. We major on the Word of God in, in our time of worship. We want to unpack the Word of God verse by verse, because it's been, as it's been said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so we do hear what's called expository preaching, if you're not familiar with that. Um, all that means is we pick books of the Bible and just go through them one verse at a time, very beginning all the way to the end, and just try to bring out or expose through exposition what the Spirit of God has spoken to us in His Word. So here we are in Romans Chapter 7, again, welcome to everyone, especially those of you who are newer with us. Great to have you in our time of worship. Romans chapter 7, we'll be looking at verse 20 to 25. Well, I am notoriously horrible at golf. Uh, If you're ever in, in a rough season of life, and you need a laugh to cheer you up, just take me golfing. And that'll be a healthy medicine. If I'm out on the golf course, the only safe place on the golf course is in front of me. And if you, if you own a house on a golf course where I'm golfing, you better, you better call up Mr. Insurance Agent and, and like get an extra policy taken out. Because uh, I can't hit straight. And my dad and I, uh, my dear dad, because of that, we'd, we would play, and he was a little better than me. But in the rare moment that we would watch golf, uh, there was something very memorable about watching this fascinating sport. Some PGA big-timer would line up for a shot and just shank it into the water. And my dad and I would high-five and and chuckle and just derive great comfort from that. Extraordinary comfort from that moment. And you know, those those piously ruthless announcers, sometimes British, they would quietly say something like, well, Brookings, I say that that was the most horrendous, catastrophic moment of the century. But my, my dad and I would be delighted when those PGI, P, PGA guys excuse me, would lose their ball in the water because it was like, oh, wow, they struggle too. They're human. And we would derive the same comfort if it was you know, in a bunker or in the rough or whatever. They're human. They struggle too. Now, 
in a similar but a much less sinister way, in a godly way, our next passage gives a kind of comfort to the believer in Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, you look at a strong believer like the Apostle Paul wrestling. He's not an unbeliever in this passage. He is a regenerate believer. And there's sort of a comfort that is to be derived from this passage and experienced as you read this passage. Because it's like, wow, that guy struggled too. I'm not the only one. And it's even similar as if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress. There's some moments in there where faithful and hopeful are walking together and they have this discourse and talk about encouraging one another and how they're, they're, they're comforted by how they're sharing their struggles together. As they're on their way to the celestial city. Believers sometimes wonder, why, why is it, especially here new believers ask this and it's a great question, why is it such a struggle? I've, I've become a Christian now. I've surrendered my life and faith to Christ. I'm regenerate, but man, why, why is this like it's gotten harder? And we see as one of the greatest individuals in history struggles, the Apostle Paul, it's a reminder, there's nothing wrong with you if as a regenerate believer, sanctification feels pretty hard. Even harder than before you were saved and knew Christ. That's, you're not to think that something's wrong with you. It's actually everything is proceeding as God designed it. This is normal. Right? As some say in this life for the Christian, cross first, crown second. You're experiencing the same thing that the most mature believers and the most gifted and godly Christians in history have experienced. And that should give every regenerate Christian comfort as, as we encounter the normal battles, normal, not abnormal, normal battles of sanctification. God's love extended to us in sanctification. And so as we, as we close this amazing section, we've been in it for a bit, this transforming and powerful section of Romans 7, I want us to be encouraged. My hope is that if you know Christ, if you don't know him, you'd come to know him and put your trust in him and receive his love by faith. And that we would be invigorated by his words and really his humility and how relatable his battle is. Though it was 2,000 years ago, different guy, totally different context and continent in the joyful struggle of sanctification. That's our, the title of our study this morning, Sanctification, the Joyful Struggle of Every Christian. So with that, follow along as I read Romans 7. I'm just going to read the whole section again for context, starting in verse 14, reading through verse 25. God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word reads, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. For what I'm working out, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, 
but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that in me evil is present in me who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the word of God. A brief word uh, about the background of Romans, just in case you haven't been with us. So we're here deep in the book, 16 chapters, we're right in the middle. A lot's come before. Romans by many is considered the, the most important book of the Bible. They're all important, we know that, but this one really crystallizes what, what salvation is all about, what, what the cross, what Christ came for, what it's all about. God's love in Jesus Christ. Romans 1 through 3 convinces us in unflattering terms as God kind of just takes us, holds our hand, and walks around fallen humanity and says, this is you. You're, you're not able to get to heaven by your works because God has an objective, fixed, unchanging standard revealed in places like the commandments. They are to be obeyed in thought and in deed, in attitude and in action, and we've all fallen short. No, no newsflash there for any sane-thinking person. We've sinned. So trying to work our way and pay our way with, with our, our, our morality back into heaven is like trying to pay your mortgage with monopoly money. It's not happening. And God, thankfully, has not left us to ourselves. He, he, he's, he's, he's sent his son, and his son extends to us freely. It's amazing. It's free. The most incredible the greatest news in the universe, and it's this phrase that Romans 3 and 4 and 5 talks a lot about, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It's probably the most important phrase you need to know as a believer. It describes how God sent his son and Jesus willingly and lovingly went to the cross and at the cross for all who would put simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ. God did this exchange of substitution where Jesus says, in effect, Father, hold me accountable for all the sins of those who will be forgiven. Hold me accountable for all of them. Condemn me for all of them. Judge me for all of them. And that is what, that's what happened on the cross. He was a wrath-bearing, substitutionary sacrifice. And that's how, and the only way, that a person 
who is not perfect can have a clean conscience, be forgiven, be saved. It is finished. We receive that by faith. Christ Christ rose from the dead to prove that he is who he said he was. He's God, that salvation is through him alone. This other exchange that God does, the instant a person puts faith in Christ, not only does he count all of our sin to having been punished in Christ, he declares us righteous. This is what the word justification means. That very instant in your life, if you have, with an open hand, a surrendered heart, say, God, save me, I need Christ. God declares you righteous as if you had lived Jesus' life. This is what justification means. This is what God does. That instant. It's really, really good news. I pray you would receive it by faith if you haven't. And receive Christ. But, there, but that's through the end of Romans 5. Romans doesn't end there. There's Romans 6 and 7 and so on. And so Romans 6 through 8 is talking about the so what of that. So what about justification? And it's that term, sanctification, that we've been studying. Sanctification. Sanctification, the word means to set apart for God's holy, loving purposes. Where God has saved you, and so you're now set apart for God's use. Still in the world, but not of it. And and it's a process where God parents you. We, the, the Christian name for God is Father, as J.I. Packer said. He fathers us to make us more like Christ. So justification, salvation isn't the end of the matter, just the beginning. Just like when a baby is born into the world, it's not the end of the matter. The baby is born to grow, to live. The Christian is born again to grow, to live, to be sanctified. This is sanctification. That We're deep in the heart of Paul talking about this. And so we, we've seen that there, really in the, in the life of a, a regenerate believer, it can be understood in sort of three stages, right? Our lives can be understood in three stages. Number one, unregenerate, unsaved, Romans 1 through 3, condemned in sin before we knew God. No one is born a Christian, by the way. We're born in sin, Romans 5 told us, Romans 3. That's stage one. Stage two is then regeneration and sanctification. Saved and now God parenting us, setting us apart for his love. Where sin is all forgiven, but now it's beginning to be purged as we grow up in spiritual maturity. That's stage two. And then stage three is glorification, which Paul will talk about later in Romans 8. Glorification, that's when we're promoted to glory, when, we, when the Lord takes the believer home and sin is forever gone. Unregenerate, condemned under sin, full of sin, regeneration and sanctification, all sin forgiven, now being purged, and glorification when the Lord takes us home. Here we are in stage two, sanctification. And in these last couple verses of Romans 7, Paul's kind of like, through his own very humble testimony, he's like taking us through an art gallery of sanctification and showing us, I want you to see different like different portraits, different features of what sanctification is to comfort the believer, to encourage the believer. So we'll see six in our, in our study of Romans 7, 20 to 25. We're going to see six features of sanctification. Six features of sanctification. 
and we should add six features of sanctification in the life of every regenerate person. Six features. Number one is this. Number one, the humility of sanctification. We'll see this in verse 20 and 21. The humility of sanctification. This is the first, as Paul's walking us through his humble testimony. Here's a portrait. Number one, the first portrait is the humility of sanctification. Verse 20, look there. If I'm doing the very things I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. When he says, I'm no longer doing it, we saw last week that that's not Paul like blame shifting. Like, oh, I don't sin anymore as a Christian. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if that's your view, you're a liar. He's saying there's a part of me, but it's not like the true me that's going to go on forever. And so Paul, like a very skillful, humble shepherd, opens up his heart. And he, and he sits next to us, and he's transparent here. And this is really just exemplary humility from the mature Christian and apostle. And I want us just to, to say law on this for a moment. Remember who is speaking in Romans 7. And remember, this is the life of a believer. We looked a couple times at eight reasons why the person speaking in Romans 7, 14 to 25, this is a believer and a mature one, not an unbeliever. Right? You can't say things like, I delight in God's word and this and that. It's not a believer. Let's remember Paul's resume. Who is this speaking to us? To just, to, just to see the humility of sanctification. This is a guy who the Bible tells us was educated in one of the foremost religious schools of the ancient world in the first century, the school of Gamaliel. Converted, Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus. Christ, the risen Christ, appears to him personally. And, and then as we read on about his life, I mean, he had these incredible apostolic gifts. Just listen to Acts 19.11. This is as Paul, as he was a believer. God was performing extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the disease left them as the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, they would say this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, and so on. Verse 14, seven sons of one Sceba, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the demons, they jump on them and destroy them. I mean, the demons, this guy was such a threat to the kingdom of darkness that the demons even know him by name. He's like, he like puts him by Jesus. I know Jesus and Paul. Who are you though? This is a giant of the faith. He rose people from the dead. 2 Corinthians 12 says he's taken up briefly to see a glimpse of heaven. He was in shipwrecks for the gospel. He was killed once. He was murdered once for the gospel. Comes back to life. Led who knows how many people to faith in Christ. Raised up who knows how many pastors. Took missions trips across the Mediterranean world. And I was reading an article about it this week. They, so, some think that he traveled over 10,000 miles in his missionary travels. Again, that's a day before. You know, planes and, 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 and cars and, and trains. Just dragging himself along. 
Some estimates say he planted around 14 churches, used of God to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and he pulls up a chair. He pulls up a chair next to us, not over us. And he says first, he says two things. First in verse 20, he says, I do stuff I don't want to do. Now, granted, Paul is not out like robbing people at knife point or in some secret bizarre scandals. But even so, he confesses in effect and says, look, there are still things, my thoughts, my attitudes, my words, I, I still sin. And he continues, verse 20 and 21. He says, this is sin which dwells in me. He's not blame shifting. It's sin in me. And then he goes on in verse 21. He says, I find the principle that, notice, evil is present in me. Do you see those words there? Evil is present in me. He's not saying, you know, this is outside of me. It's, it's social conditioning. It's the way I was raised. It's the devil made me do it. None of that. It's you provoking me. If you wouldn't have, I would. He's saying evil is in me. Wow. Sin is still a part of us. Now granted, again, when he says, no longer I doing it, again, he's talking about the, the, the flesh. That's the term for the the remaining sin that still is attached on to every believer, it's like gangrene. It's like spiritual gangrene. It's a part of your body, right? If you have gangrene, it's decaying, it's nasty, it still affects you, but it's, it's dying away. That's what Paul is saying here. And so this giant of a Christian says that sin still dwells in me. The Greek word it translated, the Greek word translated dwells, it's the word, it was a word for house. It means sin is still housed in me. It's, it's in me. I'm not better than anybody, he's saying. And when he says evil is present in me, that Greek word for evil has the idea of to be at hand, to lie there ready. So he says evil is right at hand inside me, inside my heart. It reminds us of when Jesus is teaching the disciples' prayer in Matthew 7, Luke 11. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father in heaven, right? He's saying there is sin in me and it is evil. He straight up calls it for what it is. What humility from a spiritual giant in his battle with sanctification. He's not exaggerating. He's not, you know, wow factor to make a point. This is a mature Christian, who we need to be like. And he says, there is straight up evil in me still. I see it in my thoughts. When I complain, that's evil. Because complaining is questioning God. Being impatient with people, that's evil. Questioning God's purposes in my life, that's evil. When I'm proud, when I don't want to hear it, that's evil, Paul says. This titan of a faith saved for decades an apostle. He is free and humble enough to say what is fact and what God already knows. That this side of heaven, 
even years into sanctification, there's evil lying right in me. What a humble man. And he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Much of contemporary Christianity knows nothing of this. Blame shift it. Just be, be an awesome you. You're so awesome. This is quite a different perspective which the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, is giving to us here. No, all glory is to God. This is the kind of Christian I want to be and to have in my life. No chip on his shoulder, no standoffishness, no radio silence, like, oh, no, just, no, just weird stuff. Just humble transparency, speaks the truth about himself. This is, this is the humility of sanctification, what Christ does in every single person who is born again and who is saved. Number two. Number two, there's the delight of sanctification. The delight of sanctification. Verse 22, the delight of sanctification. Oh, salvation and sanctification. There's this humility and it produces a delight. Look at verse 22. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Again, this is why in part this has to be speaking of a believer. Because no unregenerate person can have joyful delight in God's word, much less his laws, like the hard part, that thou shalt and thou shalt not. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, quote, no unregenerate man has ever said or ever can say that he delights in the law of God. I joyfully concur with the law of God. One word in Greek translated joyfully concur again, it means to delight, to have great delight, to rejoice in something, delight of soul. And notice what he delights in, the law of God. (laughs) And that refers to the first five books of the Bible, like the part where there's the commandments and Exodus and Leviticus, the harder parts. I delight in that, he says, because it's God's word and all of it is good. All of it is God breathed. I delight in that. And he says, I delight in the inner man. What does this mean? In the inner man, I delight in God's word. So, when God saves a person, newsflash, we don't become perfect. But there's this part of us, we're almost like two in one. There's the part of us that's like, that's born again, that's redeemed, that is being conformed to the image of Christ. That knows God, loves God, delights in God. But again, there's that other part of us, the flesh. Right? Sometimes it's the spirit and the flesh. Here Paul refers to that living part as the inner man. Right? That's like the source of the headwaters of delight in Christ and love for God's word. Whereas the flesh is the headwaters of sin. That's the part he's talking about, this inner man. He refers to it elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, The inner man is being renewed day by day. Talking about sanctification. Or to the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen you in the inner man. This part that is growing, that has been redeemed. It's an irreversible process, thankfully. 
John Calvin writes, quote, the inner man is not simply the soul, but that spiritual part which has been regenerated by God. So this is where delight springs from. Unfakeable. You love the word of God. Believers delight in the scriptures. It's a meal. It's food for the soul. Have you seen anywhere else in scripture where God talks about delighting in his word? Can you think of any other places? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Almost identical wording, Psalm chapter 1. And then later on in Psalm 19, David says, Your words, speaking of God's words, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, it's all about the word of God. He says, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Your testimonies, another word for the word of God, are also my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119, 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. I mean, that's amazing. The, the commandments part, I delight in it. This is why believers do stuff like go to church. Why don't you go play on a Sunday morning? Or there's much more you could be doing on a Sunday morning, getting stuff done. Because God has redeemed and caused delight. You love the word of God. And that is the absolute essential sign of a, of a living soul, by the way. Not that it's always easy, but it's a delight. Psalm 119, 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. This is the delight of sanctification. Major fruit of sanctification. So by God's grace, this is one of those truths that gives us confidence in the battle. Though we might be having great struggle, a season of, man, why am I just, I'm just tempted by this. And you know, though, that you're God's because of that delight he's given you, that hunger you have for his word. What great comfort that is. You have a palate that you didn't have before. And so, beloved, feed that delight. Do not starve that delight. That is spiritually unhealthy. Be gluttonous with that delight. Cultivate even more of a palate by gorging and cultivating that delight. Number three, the war of sanctification. Number three, there is the war of sanctification. Verse 23, the war of sanctification. And Paul, again, just bearing his humble soul. Delight, though, is invaded and battled. Paul talks about it in an interesting way. Look at verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Huh. Interesting wording here. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body. The word law there is used like a principle, a different operating mechanism. I see, I have this delight, but I see a different, operate, a different operating mechanism in, in my members. Remember earlier from chapter 7, remembers refers to like every part of your body. 
where sin like plants itself like on a beachhead. And your thoughts, your attitudes, your ears, sometimes we want to I want to catch something and get in on something juicy I shouldn't be listening to. Our eyes, our mouth. This is where sin goes and does its work. There's a battle, Paul says. It's a war. Again, why Calvin wrote this, quote, Man, thus impelled by contrary desires, is now in a manner a twofold being, end quote. There's a war. A war takes at least two parties. It's like we're a twofold being, right? So this different principle, waging war. Notice what it says in verse 23. It's waging war. Notice, beloved, it's not neutral. There's no neutrality. One word in the original text translated waging war. It's a strong term. It means to strongly oppose something. It was used in ancient times to speak of a military campaign launched on a declared enemy. That's how the word was used. This is what's happening inside of us, beloved. And if it's happening in in a giant of an apostle like Paul, then so it is with us. So there is a force, and, and this is cause for pause, There is a force in every single regenerate believer that wants to take down your joy and your delight in Christ. Some some of us, yeah, I I feel it every day. It's a war, flesh versus the spirit, inner man versus this other principle in my members. Again, it's not neutral, which means we cannot be against temptation either. You don't pet and foster temptation like it's an animal you're taking care of for a temporary amount of time. You slay it. Just like, like Samuel cut Agag to pieces in 1 Samuel 15. Now, and then he makes this phrase that, at least to me, was initially confusing before I'd study this. He says, making me, verse 23, a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. That's, I put the brakes on here. In what way is a regenerate believer made a prisoner of this operating principle? I thought we were free from sin, Romans 6. We're no longer slaves to sin, Romans 6 told us. What does this mean? Now, whatever it means, it cannot mean a couple of things, about three things. It cannot, it cannot mean, right, from everything we've studied further, this is speaking of an unsaved person, someone who's not yet a Christian, cannot mean that. See the previous few sermons. Number two, it cannot mean that a regenerate believer is incapable of obeying God. It cannot mean that. Again, Romans 6, Ephesians 2.10 says, God, for the believer, God has prepared good works that we would walk in beforehand. That's out. Neither can it mean there's such a thing as a believer who lives in unrepentant sin and is never sanctified. Right? You've heard of this unfortunate phrase that is biblically fictitious, the carnal Christian. Okay, Romans 6 we, we dealt with that already. So there's no such thing. Struggle, but not uninterrupted unrepentance. 
So here's how to understand this. Again, right? The life of a believer, three stages. We looked at that. Unregenerate, dominated by sin. Number two, regenerate, sanctified, sin forgiven, sin being purged. Three, glorification. Context is everything. Context is key to understanding this, just like any Bible passage. The context is that stage two, sanctification. So we ask, in what sense, as I'm in sanctification, I'm saved, is there this like imprisonment happening with sin? In what sense? And the answer is this, right? The flesh, Galatians 5, 16, 17, and on talks about this. The flesh is always with us as believers until what? We're glorified, okay? There's no such thing as a perfect sinless Christian, in other words. So I think it's in that sense that Paul is saying there's like this imprisonment. The flesh is always with us, even though we're regenerate. There's still this spiritual decaying gangrene that's attached to us. Right? It's like imprisoned with us in that sense. That's what he's saying. Sin is at war in the believer. Again, this is just encouraging. I want us to hear from another saint of the past, Aurelius Augustine. Fourth century pastor and theologian. R.C. Sproul said it's been said he was, the, he was the greatest theologian of the first millennium and maybe ever in church history. An enormous writing and teaching ministry Augustine had. It was so enormous. His, his works now, they're in 55 volumes. It was so enormous, his writing ministry, that in the 6th century, Isidel, the Archbishop of Seville, he had this, there was this huge, huge like box in which was contained all of Augustine's works, and he etched on it, whoever says that they have read all of this is a liar. Just, Augustine was a giant. And do you know what he often wrote and talked about as a believer? How much temptation hassled him. In his book, Confessions, you need to get it. He's, he's writing often about, man, I just struggle some days. Laying his heart on the table. So this is normal. The war is highly normal. So what about that? Be on guard, beloved. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sin tests you. Temptation systematically examines you to see where you are weak and will go after you in those areas and is okay with you being comfortable in other areas just as long as it can come around and test the fences in another area where we're letting off the gas a little bit. Just how it is. So much war terminology in the Bible, right? I think the reality of sanctification, also this, this war informs how local churches should do community as members with one another. We need to look around as members and just realize, man, we, we're all in a battle together. <laughs> Let's be gracious with each other. Let's be patient with each other. It's like we're all in this battle. The battle hits one guy different than another, than another, than a third and a fourth. We're in the battle. It's just let's be at peace with each other. Let's all link arms and engage in stage two here of sanctification, 
together in humility and love. We have got to do this if we're going to dare name the high name of Christ. Number four, the contrition of sanctification. The contrition of sanctification. This is found in verse 24. The contrition. Paul looks at this war, sees it's in me, it's evil than in me, and then look at verse 24. What a phrase. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Come on, Paul, you're being too hard on yourself. You should have some self-esteem, Paul. Why do you say that? Wretched man that I am. And notice he doesn't say, wretched man I used to be before I was a believer. Wretched man that I was as a younger Christian, but I've arrived now. Present tense, wretched man I am. And this is, by the way, very, very spiritually healthy. This, almost paradoxically, is a sign of a spiritually healthy soul. It's the one who says to himself, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm better than a lot of people. That is, you, 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 need to, you need to check your soul. This is a man who has walked very close to Christ, who's given his life to follow Christ. He's not comparing himself to others. He's not, he's not, he's, he's not in that tragic form of self-righteousness. Well, at least I'm better than, you know. I mean, and Paul could say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm better than like 99.9%. And he says, wretched man that I am. Why, why does he say that? What, what's happening there? Because when you get saved, you start to see yourself not subjectively, but objectively in the light of God. You walk with God now. And the closer you get to God, the more you see his holiness and yourself, oh, I still have work to do in my life. The year was somewhere between 1503 and 1506. And Leonardo da Vinci undertook to make a portrait of a noble woman from Florence named Lisa del Giacondo. And he painted this little portrait, pretty famous now, the Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, since like the late 1700s, has been housed in the Louvre Museum in downtown Paris. I've seen it many times. Now, you used to be able to get really close to it. Now you can only get 15 feet from it. And, and, and 15 feet, and, and granted, this thing is a masterpiece. Hear that in light of what I'm about to say. It's a masterpiece. It's currently valued at a billion dollars. The people who insure the painting, they value it at a billion dollars. Most valuable painting. It's considered a, the archetypal masterpiece. Fifteen feet away, you don't see these things, but when you get really close to it, it's full of cracks. I mean, there are cracks everywhere. Every masterpiece has its cracks. This is the situation with every regenerate person in sanctification. Paul understood as I get close, as I see myself close up in the light of the glory and the holiness of Jesus Christ, 
And I really understand the spirit of his word. Close up, Paul sees, I have cracks everywhere. And for this reason, he says, wretched man that I am. Because the more we grow as a Christian, we grow in humility, and the more we grow up, we grow down. That's how it works. We find ourselves in Paul's cry here. And so he cries out in verse, to the end of verse 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's not a cry of despair. We'll see that in a minute. Despair means hopelessness. Nowhere to go. It's not a cry of despair. But it is a real, authentic moment of contrition where he sees, man, sin, it's a very deep theological thing, he, see, he is reminding us that sin is the cause of death. The reason human beings die is not because of some Darwinian gradualistic mechanism. It's because death entered the world, just like God promised. Sin equals death, Genesis 2.17. And Paul says, I just want to be rid of my sin. How will this happen? Verse 25, number five. This brings us to number five, the joy of sanctification. Number five, the joy of sanctification. The joy of sanctification. Not a moment of despair. Humble, mature, godly contrition. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is everything. This is the joy of sanctification. Why does he thank God through Christ? Because he has this, this, this felt contrition that is very spiritually healthy and necessary. But we don't stop there. We don't fix our eyes on ourselves. Beware of looking at ourselves too much. We don't want to stop there. Hebrews 12. Let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes not on ourselves, but on Jesus. You got to look up. Look at the cross. Look at the risen Savior. And he's saying this for at least three reasons. There are at least three reasons for the joy of sanctification. Number one, he's reminded that Christ has already died. He's already died for all of it. He's already been condemned as a wrath-bearing sacrifice. He's already paid the price. Thanks be to God. What joy. The stuff I'm going to struggle with tomorrow, already paid for. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thanks be to God. Two, joy, because Paul realizes, that's right, even in my days of worst struggle, God's love does not sway from me at all. Because God does not love me just as I am, false. Far better, God loves me just as Jesus is. Righteous, exalted, risen, having totally obeyed the commandments of God and died for my lack thereof. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified, again that righteous, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is joy, beloved. Let us struggle, but let us struggle with our eyes on Christ. And then number three, the reason he is so joyful here. There's the contrition and the joy. Both are necessary. Both 
indicative of maturation in Christ. He's joyful third because he knows one day Jesus is taking him home and he's going home and his flesh is not. Separation. Like an old worn out shirt, he's going to throw it in the proverbial dumpster. And sin will not go with us when we go to heaven and when we're resurrected when Jesus comes back and his feet hit earth again. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Joy. This is the joy of sanctification. And so, so then, beloved, let's keep this in mind. So far, so far from derailing us, our daily struggles, the stuff that causes the contrition. So far from derailing us in the battle of sanctification, the struggle is to serve as a daily telegram. Oh, that's right. Christ already died for it. I'm righteous in Christ, and he's going to complete the work he started. Because you would not have the struggle if you weren't going to heaven. James Montgomery Boyce and his excellent commentary on Romans says, quote, the triumph of grace is assured. The triumph of grace is assured. In other words, you going, your sin not. The triumph of grace is assured regardless of how badly we may think we're doing now or, or how near despair we may be due to the intensity and duration of the struggle, the struggle with sin. Finally, number six the endurance of sanctification. Number six, the endurance of sanctification. Found at the end of verse 25, the endurance of sanctification. It's, it, it's interesting to me, as I was studying this, I thought, why didn't Paul end? Why doesn't he end with, thanks be to God? End on that note. It's very important he doesn't. Look at the end of verse 25. So then... On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Again, this battle in us. The law of my mind, he's simply referring to, again, that redeemed part of us by the spirit, the flesh, battle. And his wording is interesting. When he says, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. The Greek word there, serving, it should be translated slaving. It means to serve as a slave unto. And this is a good thing. He says, I'm, I'm serving as a slave unto God's law. I'm saved, I'm forgiven. I'm serving as a slave to God's law. Because as we studied in Romans 6, every human being is either a slave to Christ or Satan. There's no in between. And equally interesting, notice he doesn't say, well, the law, the commandments, that old stuff, we're under grace. We don't need to think about that anymore. Do you see that? The apostle of grace says, because I'm saved, in effect, sanctification, I'm still in the most privileged place a human can be, serving unto the law of God. That's where I get to be. Not to earn his way to heaven but because Christ has already lavishly, freely given it. But why does he keep talking about this after he just ended on a high note? It's a reminder that, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, God loves us, just as 
sees us just as he sees Christ. Yes, number three, he's going to complete the work. However, it's not done yet. We need to endure. Sanctification doesn't stop in this life. Right? The parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 20 to 23. Jesus says it's the one that endures bearing fruit that evidences saving faith. A faith that endures is a faith that is alive. So Paul realizes, look, we're not done. I'm not, you know, I'm not, Jesus hasn't gotten me yet. So it's a reminder, we need to keep enduring, keep battling the flesh, not tap out of sanctification. This is the endurance of sanctification. No, endurance does not earn our way to heaven. No way. But it evidences that the salvation is genuine. And so here we've been walked through the gallery of sanctification by the humble, mature apostle of grace. Evil, contrition, I'm so joyful. And just I want to end circling back. Are you saved? Have you entered the battle? Not do you know about Jesus? Have you heard facts? Have you, you know, do you have parents, a grandma who was prayed for you? Are you yourself where Paul is, regenerate in the joyful struggle? And if you find yourself deceived or you're not saved today, the great news is the Bible said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can just cry out to him. Confess your sin. He already knows it. And the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ are wide open for sinners. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of your word, the comfort of your word, the clarity of your word. I pray that if there's anyone in here today who has not surrendered their life to Christ, who hasn't come all the way to Christ by faith, that, that you would move in them to do so this very moment. Thank you for this comforting passage where Paul has bared his soul and believers can just identify and know what that's like. Father, strengthen us in the joyful struggle and the battle of sanctification. We know it doesn't depend on us, but on you. Thank you that your grace is with us every day. Let us go out this week being sanctified and therefore useful to you, salt and light in the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.